Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. And this is my friend Scott. Hi. <laughs> do you hear that? Hello. Now, do you hear that? Yeah. What do you hear? I am hearing squeaks. They're like tiny little chirps. If you can hear that chirping, those are the bats. And where are we? We are under South Congress Bridge in Austin, Texas. What time of day is it? It is approximately 7.30 and the sun is almost all the way down. Describe the scene. What's going on here? Uh, there's lots of people milling around looking upwards at a empty sky at the moment, um, anticipating something to happen. Uh, what kinds of people are around? Tourists, locals, uh, couples on a lover's waltz at night. All kinds of people. Yeah, all kinds of people. And what are we looking at down here? Uh, immediately in front of me is Ladybird Lake. There are boats and barges filled with other people just slowly floating on by. I saw some kayaks earlier. There's one of those big swan boats drifting backwards, which is sort of impressive. Yeah, yeah. it looks graceful out there. Yeah. Have you ever done this before? No, this is my first time. You've never done this before? No. Uh -uh. You've never seen the bats? No. Every night, right around sunset, this river of bats streams from out underneath this bridge. It is quite a spectacle. How would you describe it to somebody who's never seen that before? It looks like something that would be in an actual movie. Like it's, you know it's bats, but it's not moving particularly fast. And so it's sort of this slow to medium speed drift of this dark shadow. Like it's gonna land somewhere and turn into a vampire and suck our blood, you know? Uh, it's it's kind of creepy. It is, yeah. I didn't really understand the fascination with the bats in Austin, and I totally get it now. You know, it is like a force of nature that lives under a bridge that everybody passes over, you know, every single day. It's worth a visit, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Did I tell you why I wanted to do this episode down here? You did not. 
The guy I interviewed for today's episode, his name's Tor Hansen, and he wrote a book called Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid. And it's all about how organisms all around the world are already responding to climate change, mm. to global warming. And okay. I was like, I'm trying to come up with a good place to do the field recording. He's like, how about the bats? And he sent me a paper. Apparently the bats, like even 20 years ago, used to migrate come like October and November. Uh-huh. But as temperatures have warmed, the bats now stay here like through the winter. Ah, okay. I started the interview by asking him, isn't it a little early to say that animals are already responding to climate change? It's a great question. And I think what is amazing is the speed with which things are happening and the fact that we can go out and measure these responses to climate change in real time. One of the most common themes that emerged from my research for this book in terms of talking with scientists was how often they went out into the field expecting to study one thing and the conditions on the ground were so different that they came back with data on something completely different or completely unexpected. I want to sit with this for just a minute, just to make sure we're making the case. I perceive that in the last 10 years, there's been a kind of shift with climate change. Maybe it's longer than that. Maybe it's more like 15. But where for a lot of people, it is now becoming a part of their consciousness. It's part of their lived reality. We look at the weather and say, is this a global warming day? We observe something unexpected and we say, is that linked up with climate change? So on one hand, it's not hard for me to believe that biologists, you know, studying a wide range of ecosystems and environments are saying, we're seeing an ecological response to warming already. On the other hand, there's still, I think, a feeling that global warming is this slow moving behemoth, you know, and that we're really in the early days. So yeah, I think there is still something surprising about the idea that there's already like a widespread response to be observed. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that we are used to thinking about it from a climatology perspective, and we're used to thinking about, okay, how much carbon is being released and what can we predict with our models and so on and so forth. So there is something quite remarkable about being able to walk out into your backyard and see a response taking place in the plants and animals right around us. And I think that is one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is to show how quickly it's happening, how quickly the biota are responding and how we can see it. We don't even have to be trained biologists to see it. We can get outside in our own neighborhoods and see this response taking place. I mean, I think just to say what I think I'm hearing is in as much as I am arguing that over the last 10 or so years, there is a conscious connection that we are developing with climate change. Thus far, it's kind of been limited to the sort of the inorganic weather climate, right? We haven't quite taken that next step of the things that get affected by climate, you know, especially out in the wilderness and out in the wild and nature. And so let's get into it a little bit. I want to unpack some of the different flavors of what response to climate change means. Your chapter titles are actually very convenient for doing exactly that. (laughs) So I want to talk about moving, I want to talk about adapting, and I want to talk about evolving. Yeah. And let's start with moving. I was surprised to learn how fast tree dispersal 
can go down, how quickly trees are capable of moving. Can you walk us through what you learned about tree dispersal? Sure. The tree movement idea is one that takes a little imagination and a little bit of math, but when you get your head around it, it's really quite remarkable what's going on. And I think in part because we're so used to thinking of trees, even revering trees for being these solitary, stable parts of our environment. And of course, when we talk about tree movement, we're talking about the ranges of trees shifting across the landscape. And a wonderful researcher named Songlin Fei from Purdue is the one who led the biggest study of this that's happened to date, looking at data from thousands of forest plots across the eastern part of North America. And if you want an insight into the future of the forest, you have to look at the young trees because they give you a glimpse of what the forest will look like in the future. If you're looking at the big trees all around you, that's telling you about the past. It's telling you about the growing conditions when those trees were germinating and just getting established. So if you really focus on the saplings and the seedlings, and you can see that in one part of a species range, those seedlings and saplings are becoming more abundant and they're diminishing in another part of the range, you can see how that range of the species is shifting following these trends in climate. And when they did this for dozens and dozens of species across eastern North America, they found them moving at remarkable rates, you know, moving kilometers every decade, shifting across the landscape uh, at a very rapid pace. And it changes how we think not only of trees, but also of the speed by which not just you know one species but something that defines an ecosystem like a forest can shift in composition at a rate that we can measure over a period of years. And just so it's clear to the audience, I mean, when we talk about shifting, you know, largely they're following the climate. So if they're more used to a mild temperate climate, then they're shifting north in latitude or uphill so that they're able to exist in, in cooler environments. Yeah. So if you imagine these waves of trees, so to speak, shifting, what is happening is a difference in how they're getting established. Trees can be dispersed by birds. They can be dispersed by squirrels. If you're talking about acorns and so on, they can be dispersed by the wind. And you always have this sort of shadow of seeds that are cast out from the adult trees. And most of them perish and a few survive uh, into the next generation. So you're talking about difference in survival and where they're surviving. And you can see that one side of that shadow for many of these species, whether it's to the north for a lot of the conifers in the east following the warming temperatures there, or whether it's north and west for many of the hardwoods following temperature and moisture, you can see that shadow of seeds succeeding in those directions. So you see the whole species then moving to follow those trends in climate. And once you get your head around it, it does look really like, you know, these armies of trees marching across the landscape. It's hard to get the Lord of the Rings imagery out of your mind when you think of <laughs> an army of trees marching across the landscape. There's one example that was not in this chapter that came later in the book, uh, which is Joshua trees. I want to talk a little bit about Joshua trees specifically because they sometimes get brought up in conversations around assisted migration. Why aren't Joshua trees able 
to move north and south? Because my understanding is that in the geologic past, you know, over the course of the Pleistocene and Holocene, that the Joshua trees were able to move north and south with shifting climate patterns, but they're not able to do that now. Why not? I love the Joshua tree example because it really reminds us that, yes, species are dealing and coping with climate change and the challenges it presents, but that's not the only challenge they have in their world right now. If you look at the fossil record for Joshua trees, we can see that their range has shifted, as you were mentioning, north and south over time following changes in climate over long periods of time. Until this most recent episode of warming, and now they seem stuck in place. And so when researchers started looking into this, there's a fellow named Ken Cole who did a great paper on this. They realized that there's something missing from the world of the Joshua tree, and they realized that what it is was their long-distance disperser, which was the, the Shasta giant ground sloth. If you go out to these caves in the desert southwest, you can find places where these ground sloths lived and their dung piles remain intact, sort of preserved long-term, fossilized by that dry desert air, and they're full of Joshua tree leaves and seeds and so forth. So that was a disperser that was able to move Joshua trees long distances, and those mammals were hunted to extinction by humans. 14,000 years ago. There is habitat that is becoming more suitable for Joshua trees as the climate warms, but they can't get there. And that's why, as you mentioned in your intro, that species comes up in discussions of what we call assisted migration or assisted dispersal, in that we know now where Joshua trees are likely to thrive in the future, but since their disperser is gone, we may have to do it for them. I only recently was... um enlightened to the idea that these ecological interactions that existed before humans arrived on the continent were disrupted when we killed all these things off, like the ground sloth. That's trippy. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about adaptation. I mean, the example of tree dispersal is a nice kind of counterintuitive example of how an organism that may provide the architecture for an ecosystem might move around with uh, new climate patterns. Let's take an example around adaptation. Bears on Kodiak Island are increasingly facing a choice. What exactly is that choice, and what does it have to do with climate change? So this study is an example of how scientists these days are heading to the field to study one thing, and they end up studying something else. And it has to do with the research of a fellow named Will DC, who went to Kodiak Island, interested in Kodiak bears, these large brown bears on the island that feed famously upon salmon. And he wanted to study how the bears will move from stream to stream following the various surges of salmon that come up in their landscape. And so he had bears that were collared and tagged, and he was counting salmon in streams, and he had this whole thing set up. And indeed, he was beginning to see how the bears could follow the surges in salmon and be in the right place at the right time. And halfway through the field season, at the peak of the salmon runs, the bears disappeared. And he told me, he said, you know, it was a lucky thing that we were there to see it, but also that we had these bears tagged and we could just follow them. Like, where on earth are these bears going? Here is their key feeding opportunity on salmon and they're gone. And what happened was they moved up into the hills and they started feeding upon elderberries. 
elderberries and a range of other native wild berries in that landscape are an important part of bear diets in the fall, typically after the salmon runs have started to diminish, bears would always shift over to berries and it was an important way they fattened up. But what Will was able to show was that given the choice between salmon and elderberries, particularly the red elderberry, they chose the berries. Why that choice was forced had to do with climate change and the fact that the summers are getting warmer, the berries were ripening earlier and earlier, and suddenly, unlike in the past where they could move from salmon to berries later in the season, they had to make a choice because the berries were ripe. And they chose the elderberries because it turns out they're an even better source of food than the salmon. If you look at the protein content of the elderberry, it's an odd berry. It has 12 to 14% protein. Berries are usually full of starches and sugars, but protein is a bit weird. So it's a weird berry. Yeah. The bears choose it because, in fact, the salmon have too much protein. So if you put bears into a feeding study where they can choose from a buffet, they tend to come out at something around you know, 15, 17% protein. And these elderberries are 12 to 14. So it's much closer to their ideal food than salmon where you're talking 60, 70, 80% protein. So they chose the berries. And it's an example of adaptation on the fly and an example of the choices that climate change are really forcing upon creatures in real time. I've, I've held off as long as I can. Let's talk <laughs> hurricane lizards. Uh, I've written down on my prep sheet, how did you catch wind of this story, which is such a nerdy way to frame this question. Uh, but let's go ahead and do it. Tell me about hurricane lizards. I should preface the answer by saying that among the adaptations that we see in response to climate change, all these things that we're measuring, many of them come down to what biologists refer to as plasticity, flexibility, sort of an inherent ability to respond. Like those bears, they didn't have to evolve to go and eat the elderberries. They had the behavioral flexibility to just move up the hill and find them. That's a sort it's, of distinction between adaptation and evolution in a sense then. Exactly. So is the distinction then about behavior versus some sort of genetic expression? I just want to make sure we understand the difference between organisms adapting versus evolving. Thank you. That's a, I'm glad you asked that question because, again, it boils down to this idea of the innate ability to adapt versus the need to evolve new traits to adapt. Right. And the innate ability, this plasticity that we see in creatures can be behavioral, but it can also be in terms of how bodies respond. A classic way to think of this that's appropriate for these past couple of months is we think about humans as well and look at the Olympics in Tokyo and the Paralympics, which have just now concluded. And as these top athletes from around the world descended upon Tokyo for those Olympic Games, many of them did so literally. They came down from high elevation because many elite athletes train at high elevation because of the plasticity in the human body. Air is less dense at higher elevations, so every breath you take has fewer oxygen molecules. And so the body has an innate ability to cope with that by producing more red blood cells and doing other things in terms of blood flow and so forth to compensate for that less dense air. Mm -hmm. And so if you train at that elevation and come back to sea level to compete, you have a small edge 
because your body had that response. And so we see that kind of physiological adaptation as well that can be built into the genome of a species. It's already there. That is different from evolution where you're talking about changing and coming up with new uh, genetic responses to a situation. That fine line between just adapting through some kind of plastic response and actually uh, having a genetic measurable evolutionary response uh, has to do with that. What's already baked in and what's new. Great. I really enjoyed that example. Um, Hurricane lizards. Tell me about hurricane lizards. So this project is a terrific one. Once again, scientist heads to the field to study one thing. And in this case, it's a fellow named Colin Donahue, who is a herpetologist and has a great interest in lizards. He was working down in the Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean, and he'd gone out with his crew and surveyed this population of anole, which is a small lizard, a tropical and subtropical lizard. We're talking a few inches long. They're cute little buggers, uh, very diverse in the tropics. There are a whole bunch of different species of anole. This one was poorly known because it just exists on a few islands there in the Caribbean. And his plan was to survey these lizards and then a hurricane struck. Not just one, but as he pointed out to me, two Hurricanes struck back to back, flattened everything on these islands. And of course, it uprooted trees and destroyed structures. But what he realized in that moment was he had the chance to study the effects of the hurricane. So he went back a few weeks later and looked at the data and realized that, in fact, there were measurable differences in these lizards. The survivors had larger toe pads and stronger front legs. And he hypothesized that that would help them to hold on to trees during these high winds. And the ones that couldn't hold on were blown away and killed. Survival of the fittest in action, and those were the traits he focused on, with one exception that he couldn't figure out, and that was why the back legs were shorter. Front legs, strong, and big toe pads, that made sense. But why were the back legs shorter? So actually, let's pause just to make sure everybody's keeping up with this. So he measured lizards before these hurricanes, he measured lizards after, and he found a physiological change, larger toe pads, smaller back legs. And the idea was that they're able to hang on to stuff when there's really heavy winds. That's exactly right this massive disturbance came through and the ones best adapted uh, because of their physiology are the ones that are still there. Fantastic. But why in the world are the back legs shorter? Yeah. So he set up this experiment in his hotel room with a leaf blower and <laughs> they had uh, a way to measure. I mean, I, I've, I think of this, I'm like, who are the people in the next room? Like, <laughs> like call on the front desk. Like there's a guy who won't stop blowing leaves in his, his room. Okay. No. Yeah. So you can pick Picture this. He's got he captured these lizards, brought them into the hotel room. No lizards were harmed, by the way. He was very careful to uh, uh, make sure they were all uh, released back to the wild. But he set up the leaf blower to simulate hurricane forced winds, measure the wind force, and then he had the, the lizards on sticks. And he could see how, in fact, when the, the winds got stronger and stronger, the back legs slipped off. And what he saw was the lizards hanging by those strong front legs with the big toe pads while the back of the lizard was flapping in the wind. A shorter back leg 
was less drag in the wind. So that was another factor in this evolution that he figured out through that experiment. And then he went back again uh, to measure and see if, in fact, these traits were being passed on to future generations of lizards, and they were. Mm. And so he was able to really get the full package, documenting the selection event, if you will, and the evolutionary response. There's a picture in the book of this, by the way, and I really encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of your book, but like of a lizard hanging on for dear life uh, in some random hotel in Kirks and Caicos. <laughs> Everything about that experiment is just beautiful to me. God bless science. Um, you know, I, I will say that I love that uh, story, but I also did think, you know, does that totally jive? I mean, okay, I know that the science is there, that we've got warmer sea surface temperatures and therefore stronger hurricanes than we've had in the past. This is a pretty quick story around evolution, right? And uh, could that disappear just as fast 10 years from now if, hypothetically, we were to get control of global warming and uh, we were to have less frequent hurricanes? I mean, would we expect a response in the opposite direction? It's just such a fast observation for me that part of me wanted, you know, once more data, in a sense. No, that's a really good question, and it's it's very appropriate because what we have seen in other situations is how traits will, what we call, wobble, mm. right? They'll wobble in small ways in either direction over a few generations. Like, oh, it, it makes sense to have bigger towpads now, but then the hurricanes stop, and so the towpads shrink again because there's no advantage to it, and they end it back and forth. So what scientists are really looking for is longer-term effects where the selection is what we call directional. Mm. It keeps shifting things in one way. And so Colin had the very same question that you did. And what he did to take the research further was start to look at a different scale. He needed more hurricanes. He needed more lizards. And so he looked more, up, more leaf blowers. <laughs> exactly, more leaf blowers. <laughs> so he looked at an old lizards across the Caribbean and he looked at patterns of hurricane frequency over time. And then he looked at towpad size and front leg strength and so forth. And he could see that, in fact, this pattern that he observed at a micro scale in a generation was playing out over a macro scale, over multiple species, over long periods of time, in that the places where strong hurricanes have been most frequent over time, have lizards with larger toe pads and stronger front legs. So this same pattern is, in fact, producing that what we call directional selection. It's making those traits move in one direction to cope and stay over long periods of time. So a really nice way of thinking about evolution, this wobble idea that there's some flexibility in terms of what adaptation or evolution might look like. But if the forcing remains strong enough, then it becomes directional. Yes. Uh, you, I kind of imagine a wiggly line straightening out over time. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that's, that's a help, helpful way of thinking about it. Well, there's one other concept from the book that I really want to introduce to the audience because I've never heard it before. I'd never seen the word refugium. Am I saying that correctly? <laughs> yes, you've got it. Can you describe what that term means and why it matters? Sure. So it derives from obviously the same as refuge, taking refuge from the storm or taking refuge from some stress in the environment. And the idea of a refugium, or in plural it's refugia, has to do with places in the landscape that by their very nature are resistant to change. 
they change more slowly than the surroundings. And a very easy way to imagine this would be to think of a hill where the southern side of the hill gets more sunlight than the northern side of the hill. And so the northern side of the hill will possibly have forest on it. The southern side of the hill maybe have woodland or grassland. Uh, And so that cold northern side in a warming world can be a refuge at a small scale for species of trees, shrubs, and the creatures that go with them from the warmth that you experience on the south side. And, And that's a very simple example, but those places are important in periods of rapid change like we're experiencing now because they provide these pockets of habitat where species can persist for sometimes long periods of time in a hostile environment. And if you have enough of those places, and if they can bridge the gap between different climate regimes, if you will, between different periods of stability, then they can serve as pockets of refuge from which species will disperse after things change back again. One of the words that really leapt to mind when I learned about this concept was microclimates. Uh, And I was also just sort of thinking about places around the globe where there's just something weird that allows organisms that you might not otherwise expect to persist. I was thinking about hot springs. Uh, I was thinking about, I think one of the examples in your book was the base of talus fields sometimes where you can get a kind of cool draft at the uh, the base of a mountain coming and, and therefore can support you know, this small little ecosystem that once upon a time might have been representative of a much larger area, but as climates change rapidly, uh, it's clustered in this small sort of relic of the past. There's an example in central Texas, uh, there's a state park called Lost Maples, where once upon a time there were maple trees in central Texas, which is not somewhere where you expect to see maple trees. Uh, But the clustering of the hills has provided this little microclimate where those things can exist. Um, You had a personal example of a refugium in your book. I think it was when you went to grad school. What was this story? That's right. It's really the first time that I got my head around this idea of a refugium and how persistent and how long a place like that can really last. And it was the base of a talus slope, as you mentioned moments ago. When you have these blocks of rock talus, which is a a collection of boulders beneath a cliff that's eroding. It traps as well pockets of air. That air tends to stay cool and it tends to sink and it gets replenished overnight, you know, as more cool air sinks in. So you end up at the bottom of those slopes with a little area where a cold draft emerges. And at the bottom of this slope we visited when I was a graduate student in the state of Vermont, the bottom of the slope at a place called uh, Bristol Cliffs um, was like walking, it was like taking two steps and ending up hundreds of miles to the north. We were in a you know, typical northeastern hardwood forest full of sugar maples, and yet you'd walk right at the base of that slope. We're talking about, you know, an an area no larger than, you know, a big swimming pool or something. And yet you would walk there and you would be surrounded by black spruce. You would have Labrador tea, these boreal far northern or high mountain plants uh, surviving because that cool air 
made a microclimate where they could survive. And it reflects the ecosystem that covered that entire area after the last glaciers when things were colder. The boreal forests were far to the south. And those species have possibly repopulated, but most likely persisted in that tiny little place for all this time while the landscape warmed up around them and the sugar maples and other hardwoods took over. Yet in that spot, the boreal forest remains. I couldn't help but sort of future trip a little bit on this idea. It's not hard to imagine this term actually becoming more important uh, when we think about conservation and when we think about the future. I mean, we are already committed to some level of warming. We've already experienced some level of warming. And it's not hard to imagine that these refugia are going to be places in the future where people might visit to imagine what climate or what ecosystems were like in the late 20th, early 21st century. Part of me wants to like look at a globe and imagine, and I do think like, what are you looking for? You might be looking for hot springs or cool springs. You might be looking for talus slopes. You might be looking for a peculiar shape of a hill where you're just able yeah. to, you know, contain something as it exists today. Right. Yeah. Deep canyons yeah. that never quite heat up in the sun. Yeah. And one in the oceans that I think is fascinating is places where they have what they call upwellings, where deep cold water, you know, moving along a coastline hits an obstruction and shoots up to the surface. Yeah. And there's a great uh, example of this woman was studying along the coast of Africa and she was trying to study something else. But what she noticed turned out to be these upwellings where a particular kind of coastal algae that was disappearing as the waters warmed was thriving in these few places where the upwellings were bringing cool water to the surface and maintaining the conditions that that algae had been used to over time. You know, one thing I want to sort of make sure we extract as a bigger theme of your book is that we can make some of these observations now, but sort of predicting all the other follow-on ecological interactions, that if you monkey around with one species or if you monkey around with a couple of species, you can start to see what might happen and it may surprise you. But then if you want to scale that up of what happens to the whole environment, the whole, you know, micro ecosystem or macro ecosystem, it's pretty hard. It's really hard. I mean, and that is one of the take home messages from climate change biology. Expect the unexpected because you really cannot predict everything that's going to happen. Just one example, take the number of species that are moving, which people estimated between 25 and 85% of species. At the low end, that's a quarter of all the species on the planet are picking up and moving. And when they do that, they start interacting with other species, creating these what we call novel ecosystems, right? They're, they're new combinations of species, and we can't predict all of the interactions that are going to play out over time and the competition, the predation, the pollination, the, all of these sorts of ecological connections are in question when you shift things quickly. Yeah, we're really in the in our, uh, early days of learning this. Yes, absolutely. And I think another aspect of that, for me at least, has to do with ways to think about a big problem. In our conversations about climate change, it's very easy to talk about a crisis that's so large in a way that leads to despair. Yeah. And I feel that despair 
is not a particularly useful response to climate change. And then it doesn't lead to action. It leads to more despair. But what I've been inspired by in researching this book is talking with all of these scientists around the world, many of whom are on the front lines of this crisis and who are seeing real consequences to the systems and creatures that they've devoted their lives to. And yet, where you might think these are the people who have more data and might have more reason than any of us to despair, I didn't encounter a single expert who wasn't absolutely passionate about what they were doing, wasn't absolutely committed to it, and didn't feel like their work was making a difference. And I realized that, you know, I believe that curiosity is a more powerful insight into this crisis than than despair. This is a more powerful reaction because it leads to action. Okay. I want to push on this. I'm glad you went here because this is exactly where I wanted to take the conversation. It's time for the philosophy portion of our, of our podcast. <laughs> Good. We're into it. I wrestle with this, Tor. I wrestle with this in a big way. I take what you said to heart. There is a sense of despair out there, and I think it is widespread. And I think the idea of climate anxiety and mental health consequences of this global environmental crisis that we're in, uh, very real. And I take that very seriously. I do instinctually want to say that one of the solutions for that is curiosity, cultivating a sense of awe, turning our attention outward towards observation and connecting with the present and with the environment that we're living in. But I still feel like I guess a couple things. One is, I think the challenge is to try and hold those two things together because I don't want to dismiss the despair or the fear. And I certainly don't want curiosity to displace action. You know, I I worry about a sort of going too far, but but I'm, I'm looking for what the healthy psychological response is. I think your book offers a partial solution and I'm wrestling with how far to go with it. Yeah, it's an absolute puzzle in terms of how we gauge our, not just the responses of society, but our personal response to this. Because emotional capital is limited too, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, how do we invest our emotional capital in this broad crisis? Again, I take some inspiration from the work of all these people on the front lines in biology and in terms of their curiosity, but, um, there's still residual conflict in this, right? I don't know. I mean, I'm with you. I can be inspired and I want to be inspired. And I I really take to heart, not just the despair, but the importance of curiosity as maybe the single most important life skill there is. I think that (laughs) navigating where your curiosity is in your heart, I feel like you find that you locate that and you follow that in life and nothing but good things fall from that. So I I take both things very seriously, but I still feel a conflict around how to feel about this stuff. Because what we are still talking about, you know, an interesting, but still kind of terrifying thing (laughs) Exactly. you know? So I don't know. It is. I think that there is, you know, a practical side of the science that can be helpful in terms of response. And that is, you know, this biology and understanding what's happening 
it doesn't lead people to worry less about the crisis. You don't meet scientists who are less worried because they understand how the bears are reacting. You do meet people who are worrying smarter, right? <laughs> it's, so it's not worrying less, it's worrying smart. If you understand the biology, it gives you a way to allocate the resources to the places that need them most. And I mean that not just in terms of resources for research, which are scarce always, um, resources in terms of policy. There are only so many things you can do. Um, but I would return to that emotional capital as well. How do you invest your emotional capital? And let me give you an example that really was a lesson that I learned through this project. And that has to do with, you know, we all have favorites in biology, favorite species and so on. And one of mine is the golden crowned kinglet, this lovely little songbird that is very common in the Pacific Northwest where I live, common in northern parts across the continent. And I've been seeing fewer and fewer of those over the years. They were common as dirt and they're not any longer. And I've always in my mind, eh, that might be a climate change effect and feeling a bit of grief about it. Yeah. Until I looked at it through the perspective of these scientists that I was talking to and wondered, well, is that in fact a bad story? Or maybe it's not the story that I'm thinking it is. Are these little birds shifting their range? And there's evidence, you know, beginning now, evidence that in fact they are, and that in fact they're following warmer temperatures northward, and that there will be in the future, there's habitat there that's becoming better for them. And so it could be one of these situations where if a species can move and survive, that is a good climate change outcome. And so that helps me personally to worry smart about something in my environment. Okay, I'm not seeing as many of these, but if they're going to survive by shifting north, I'm all for it because I love these little birds. And so I think the biology can give us those tools at a personal level, as well as in terms of policy and these broader questions. Yeah. You know, it's interesting uh, hearing you say that the cliche knowledge is power left to mind, but I never thought of knowledge in terms of emotional power, you know, worrying smarter. I'm going to have to chew on that, Tor. That's pretty good, man. <laughs> Tor Hansen, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for making time for it. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Mike, for having me on. This has been great. Thank you again to Tor Hansen for that conversation. Again, his book is called Hurricane Lizards and Plastic Squid. Thanks so much to Lydia Fortuna for producing this episode. Most of all, thank you for listening. I'm Michael Osborne. I'll see you next time. I really think I am getting pooped on. I feel like little things like hitting me. Uh, that's called guano. Guano, thank you. <laughs> the technical term. How would you describe it to somebody who's never seen that before? A river of bats or guano? <laughs>